I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you think you spend more time thinking about music or kind of politics and current affairs? I definitely spend more time thinking about politics and current affairs. Uh, well, I don't know. That's difficult because I do the radio show and every week has a different theme. So I spend like quite a few hours each week researching and preparing and like, but I guess in terms of the question, it, I don't think about new music very much at all. And I think more about politics. And I probably think about that more than I think about our own music as well, to be honest, which probably comes across <laughs> yeah i'd say pro- probably the opposite for me but that's that's unsurprising isn't it like les is writing the lyrics and the rest of us making the music i think i think the rest of the band we're all like similarly interested in politics and share roughly the same politics but i guess it's not like a preoccupation for us to kind of think critically about it in the same way that les has to 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 write about it do you think that's kind of what gives the band a balance though the fact that you cannot, you're on either sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, um, the one thing we really never want to be and we're very aware of not becoming is a band who just kind of beat you around the head with the point they're trying to make, um, especially if the point they're trying to make isn't particularly insightful or like a new point that hasn't been made a thousand times before. But at the same time, we're aware that we want to make kind of Music that's always political, I suppose. Um, so we have to kind of walk the line between putting politics into everything we do, but not just becoming a sort of one-note bore, really, I guess. And I think the fact that the music isn't written with that in mind, that it's only the lyrics that that sort of comes into it. The music is purely a creative exercise, I guess. I think with the lyrics as well, they tend to be more observational as opposed to kind of critiquing it. They critique it purely by describing it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think a lot of it is trying to basically taking an idea that we don't, an idea that we sort of have issues with, whether it's, it's usually a modern expression of an old idea. We try not to kind of focus too much on like current affairs in the sense of writing about something that's just happened, but we write about the idea that is expressed in that event. 
because I don't want to just sound like, oh, this is my, you know, this is my view and my take on this thing. So I think what we try and do is give give the idea enough rope to hang itself, basically. We kind of, a lot of the time, we're the words that we're using and the points that we're making are the, essentially the things that the people that support that idea would also make. But we just sort of present them in a way that, I don't know, I guess demonstrates the problem within them, I, I suppose, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you're saying you're not necessarily looking at a modern idea directly. Would that be case in point with the latest single where you're kind of looking at what led up to how we got here and kind of what's resulted in where we are now as opposed to what's going on at the moment specifically? Yeah, I think because um, it kind of, well, the, it started because I saw a newspaper article about, it, well, I think the, I think the article said, the, the headline said, from Blair and Obama to Trump and Bolsonaro, where did it all go wrong? I just thought that was a mad thing to say. Well, partly because I, you know, it's, yeah, I didn't want to just write another song about why Trump is bad or why Bolsonaro is bad. Just something about this current moment. And I also didn't just want to write a song about, well, actually, Blair and Obama were bad too. So I thought it was more interesting to kind of look further into like the way that this kind of third way neoliberal consensus sort of completely failed and actually led to the rise of the far right that we see now. And yet for a lot of people, the response to that is to go back to that thing again and do it again because things were better then. And it's just taking things in isolation. Like it's bad now, it was good before. And there's no sort of understanding of how the thing before, even if you you think it's a positive, you can see sort of step by step how it led to where we are now. I thought that was a more interesting point to make than just saying, yeah, the current leaders of most, you know, developed nations are bad. It's not really an interesting thing to say. Do you think we look at before as being slightly better because we're viewing it through the lens of today? If you're looking at something through the period when we're in Trump kind of times, obviously, you know, Obama's going to appear better by comparison to that. Yeah, um, definitely. But I think that's why it's worth making that point because I'll let... I'll let Bobby jump in on this in a minute because I don't want to speak for everyone. But um, I I think that's why it's important. I think in, in the bad times, this sounds very pessimistic, but I don't, think it, I don't think it necessarily is. But when things are so obviously bad, I think it's also important to remind people or caution people against getting nostalgic for when things seemed better because it may have seemed better on the surface and for certain groups of people. But for other groups of people, it was just as bad, if not worse, in some cases. Um, And yeah, I think that I think it's worth realising that the sort of principal difference between a lot of these leaders is how they present themselves and how much they're willing to um, play the role, as we recognise it, of a sort of distinguished world leader, I guess. You know, the thing about Barack Obama that is the most obvious thing you could point to about why people like him so much is that he seems like quite a chilled out guy (laughs) and like you know he's he interviews very well and he comes across really really well and when he's not making policy and he's commenting on policy he comes across very thoughtful but his politics are so like fucking nebulous and like ill-defined other than the fact that they completely slotted in to this uh, uh, neoliberal agenda which at best is kind of a neutral status quo in a capitalist system and at worst are pursuing sort of quite well extremely uh, aggressive and violent foreign policy and 
a sort of relentless pursuit of free market economics that really leads to huge amounts of suffering for other people. The difference is he pretended that that wasn't what he was doing. Whereas the the modern sort of more, well, leaders, far right leaders, I guess, in this day and age are more open about their self-interest and the fact that they're working on behalf of a small group of people. I'm not sure that's a new thing. I'm just, I just think uh, they're more open about it, to be honest. I think um, I think as well, there's definitely a temptation to look back at, say, like 10 years ago and think of it as being in comparison to, to what we have now, think, oh, maybe that wasn't so bad after all, but it's a real trap that we shouldn't fall in because I think a lot of people who now are very kind of, I don't know, idealistic about like Blair and Obama or, or even the EU, even in like 2012 when you had like the sovereign debt crisis in the EU, I remember that the kind of like centre-left position was that the EU was like doing something really sort of like vindictive and dangerous and that it tied into like the austerity that was across the whole continent. Now there's just like from like the centre-left, if you like pick up the Guardian, you won't find like any criticism of the EU. And the same same goes for like Obama and Blair. I remember like maybe it's a reflection of how old we were at the time, but I remember as a teenager like definitely not having the idea that like Blair and Obama were good. And I got that from just like reading fairly mainstream sources. I feel like a lot of people who were probably quite quick critical then are now just like happy to go, oh, well, yeah, maybe it wasn't great, but it's so much better than we had now. Can't we go back to that? It's, yeah, like, like, like Les was saying, it's really, it's a sort of trap you don't want to fall into because the reason things are the way they are now is because of the way they were then. And there were things that people were very critical of like 10, 15 years ago. We shouldn't just kind of go back to the way things were uncritically. If there, if there are elements of like how politics was 10 or 15 years ago that we think are better than the way things are now, then maybe we can try and like progress forward to something which is like combines the good things, but definitely like is, is aware of like, yeah, how we got here. You see it in the way that, George W. Bush has been completely like uh, rehabilitated now by kind of liberal commentators in America because they're, they're so obsessed with sort of the office of president and um, the way that you're supposed to behave <clears throat> in office that they now look at George W. Bush, who they hated at the time, and they, they're now saying, well, you know, he was presidential and... He, you know, well, at least he never spoke to people like this. At least he never did that. And he's become this weirdly rehabilitated figure on, in sort of liberal America. And I just think it's obscene. Um, and it's, I mean, the EU is a perfect example of that. Being sort of rabidly pro-EU has never and ha- has never been a kind of left-wing position or any sort of principled leftist would ever sort of fly a, an EU flag because the reality is the EU is a free market economic bloc. And we've seen pre-Brexit and post-Brexit, but we saw pre-Brexit the way that countries are treated when they go against that um, sort of free market protectionist block. And it's pretty brutal. But then Brexit happens and and the, the narrative of Brexit is led by the far right and by racist agenda and anti-immigration agenda. And I just think there's a lack of nuance in critiquing that by becoming flag-waving EU supporters because I honestly think you can take a principled stand against 
the economics that the EU represents while also being opposed to the right-wing agenda that leads to Brexit. I don't think you... I think you can be both things, you know? I don't think it has to be one or the other. And I think that nuance is lost a little bit. So I think that that area of kind of nuance and interpretation is kind of what we try and um, address, I, I suppose. Is it harder to be nuanced in the world that we live in now? Like, is part of the reason that Trump and, you know, Johnson and stuff have been successful a result of the fact that they're kind of quite easy to define by one dimension for most people? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... It is in the sense that when things are happening, you're often kind of boxed into a corner where you have to kind of take a side. You know, for example, I remember like just over a year ago before the last election, when there were these big kind of like anti-Brexit protests. And it was kind of like there was a block of like millions of people who were quite like rapidly pro-EU. And it seemed like they were, you like if you wanted to stand stand up to like what, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings were doing and trying to take, or at least threatening to take Britain out of the EU without a deal. So it sort of seemed like you were either on one of those two sides. And then when there's a general election, like I, th- I think we saw as well that in the way in the last general election, that so many people like could not bring themselves to vote for Labour. And people said they were going to vote for the Lib Dems or weren't going to vote at all, despite the fact that they were like, the most sort of ardently anti-Brexit people and the only way to avoid like a hard Brexit was to vote for Labour. These people chose not to. To have like a nuanced view would be to say like, or even if you didn't like particular aspects of like the Labour programme or whatever, you could have done that and that would have been the most responsible thing to do to avoid a hard Brexit. Yeah, I, I suppose that... I think the suggestion now is that there's no nuance and that the positions are sort of far to the right and far to the left. But I just don't think that's true because, I mean, you have seen the, the well, the right of sort of, the mainstream right have gone further, f- further to the right. And people would probably point to the sort of visibility of left-wing movements um, within like Antifa or whatever it would be. But actually, if you look at the discourse in like the people that actually hold power and the people that have the potential to hold power. It's not a right-left binary at all. It's a right-centre binary. The centre is painted as the left, which has pushed many people that would have been sort of, I don't know, left liberals, let's say, pushed them into the centre because they see that as the only way to combat the right. And I think... So given that there's there's no nuance and the two poles are right to centre, essentially, when you break it down... Um, I think that it is hard to have that nuance because if you if you sort of present a principal critique of liberalism, then you're just accused that you you know you're just helping out the far right. You might as well be part of the far right, so that doesn't help. But I think it's I think when that is the case, it's more important than ever to have a sort of principled left wing voice and platform. And I think that's essentially what just what we're trying to do, like taking so the kind of in to our songs i guess and what they're about the in would be a a current event or something that's in the news and we would then look at that and say well what what ideology drives this and what forces are behind this and just try and present a principled critique of that completely devoid of any partisan thing like we're not allying ourselves to any party or any 
specific tendency, but we're just presenting a principled sort of left-wing alternative, I guess, to the either neoliberal centre or far-right hegemony, I suppose. So will you unpack the issue, you know, consciously before you start to look at it in a song? Do you need to understand it before you try and approach it in an artistic domain? Um, maybe not in, not maybe not if, if it's a sort of current event, maybe not in like forensic detail, but it I would want to understand it enough to then, basically I'm just looking to think what ideology is this? What theory is this representative of? And what theory and what theory can be used to sort of critique this, I suppose. And, um, the lyrics usually start out a lot. I mean, this is probably someone's laugh, listen to this laughing. Cause I think we well, only ever write five words in, in, in each song, but, um, they start, they start out a lot more wordy and like the, the, you know, imagine it, they're full sentences sometimes, but then once the music is written and it becomes, it becomes a creative exercise again, then I start paring it down and taking out words and phrases that will fit the music that retain enough meaning that the point will be, will come across because if you, if you've never listened to our music before and you've just heard me describing where the lyrics come from, I would not blame you for saying, well, I, I will never listen to that because that doesn't sound fun at all. I do like to enjoy music, you know, which I think comes back around to the, the, the separation between the music and the lyrics in that that's like the, the we're talking about the ideas that, spawn the lyrics and the arguments we're trying to make and that's one part of it but the lyrics are always fitted around the music and made to complement the music you know we're never reading a manifesto we're trying to make people dance <laughs> at the end of the day i mean you tend to anchor songs around one kind of like you're saying there's simple phrase mantrasque thing does that phrase arrive towards the end of the process? Is it like a distillation of everything that's come before that kind of exemplifies the full thing of what you're trying to speak about? Uh, it's usually pretty organic, I think, because like I say, I'll take I'll take out the words and the phrases that are sort of necessary and just only keep what is necessary. And that you, yeah, that usually ends up being phrases or like the end of a sentence that kind of just sums up the point. And actually, a lot of the time, because the music usually comes out of sort of imp a level of improvisation, which just kind of goes around and around and around until it settles into something recognisable. And a lot of the time, I usually write the lyrics in the like in the rehearsal room while the track is being played. And a lot of the time, there isn't. I haven't got enough lyrics for the whole song, and like. Sometimes I'll just repeat things to as a placeholder and occasionally that repetition actually ends up working or having meaning. So I just keep doing it. It's that or it's just laziness, really, because I think if I just keep repeating this last line, then I don't have to write any more lyrics. Sometimes it does. Uh, it does work. I, I often wonder if it's if it's like slightly stressful to like do like what you said, which is take something which is a bit more verbose and wordy and then just like strip it down to the the few words that you need to like hammer this message home but you know the more the more you kind of strip it away the more open you're leaving it to interpretation and i i mean i find like when i write for example you it, it's really hard to avoid the temptation to just like explain yourself in like really excessive detail yeah do you do you ever find less like when you've when you've written something you kind of look look back at the lyrics and think like 
how how would someone who doesn't know me and already know what I stand for how would they interpret that um I don't know really I think um I think a good example of it is um road is the song road to hell which is well it's about the police essentially from a kind of and not about any specific incident again it's just as the the idea the sort of ideology behind an existing police force in the way that we understand it and originally the lyrics were like full sort of sentences about like you know the police were not necessarily word for word but essentially saying you know the police are and by their very nature and by the way that the inception of the police force they are agents of class antagonism and they are a an armed or a, a, a force um like force that the state has um to use against citizens um and use it to disrupt um the flow of capital and 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 protect capital as well but that's not a song <laughs> so that just literally became agents of antagonism oh and the other thing was you know people always say that uh, there's value in sort of joining the police to change it from the inside or people go in with good intentions so the song literally became good intentions good intentions agents of antagonism disrupt the capital that's the song so it's basically four lines taken out and I, but i think that those four lines a it's more interest it's it's more interesting to listen to than a kind of bit of theory um b I think those lines still have enough meaning when put together to get the point across. But having said that, I'm not sure that people listening to that song would clock that what it was about. And I think you have to kind of get over the fact that people won't always know exactly what you're talking about. But that's the nature of songwriting, isn't it? You can't tell people what you mean and you've got to hope they'll understand it. And I don't know, their interpretation has value as well. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it does that make sense. Yeah, was that that song was after Mobile Reassurance Unit, right? Uh, was it? Yeah, I don't. Know. I can't remember any of our songs. Uh, yeah, yes, it yeah, was. it was. It was the I think it was the what EP afterwards or two. Yeah, after it was the second sure. second EP. MIU was the first EP. So mm. yeah, it was a year before, year after. Sorry, because they're kind of touching on similar subject matter to a certain degree. Did Mobile Reassurance Unit inform the kind of construction? Of Road to Hell in any way? It's I guess Mobile Assurance Unit is probably more specific. That the, that song was written when I was out walking one night. I was in um, Leicester Square, and it was like a Friday Saturday night. So there was all people out, and there was this big, like police van in Leicester Square. It looked like a meat wagon, but it said Mobile Reassurance Unit on the side, and I just a thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. But then I was also like, there's something really sinister about that, that like either that people need reassurance on a night out kind of under these really horrible neon lights from the police. That's why are the police doing that? And second of all, that the police are sort of inserting themselves into, I guess, like urban spaces as this kind of friendly, cuddly force that's just there to help, which just isn't true. Um, So then that song was just about the idea that this modern idea that the police have changed like in a very short, people accept, you know, all the police were racist in the eighties, but you know, it's completely changed since then. It's like, it hasn't, you know, a lot of the same people are still involved. Nothing fundamental has changed about the organization, staffing demographics, even about the police in the last 30 years. I don't know why people would assume their practices would have changed, 
but I think you can only write a song about, you know, reacting to current uh, sort of policing so many times without sounding a bit one note. So Road to Hell, I guess, was an attempt to be a bit more theoretical and kind of explain why, you know, the issues with the police in more in more general terms to get past the idea that like a good, that there is such a thing as a good police force or a good police officer because Road to Hell is kind of, I guess, us trying to say that is actually not relevant because the ideology and founding aims of this organisation make it kind of, well, they make it completely resistant to the reform that some people seem to want to happen. It's just not realistic. So it almost feels like it maybe needs reformed in the way that we look at it as well, like from an exterior perspective, because it's not a particularly valued job to go into. You seem to kind of get a lot of certain people going into the police who maybe aren't the best people in the world to kind of do what the police are supposed to do in a positive way, if you're looking at it from the kind of optimistic angle. Yeah, well, I mean, the I suppose the, the, the sort of people that are usually targeted by recruitment into the police aren't necessarily interested in protecting people or serving their community. But at the same time, there's huge recruitment drives now um, aimed at people who want to do that and you know they, they do paint it as like join the police to sort of help your community and um, something you can be proud of and you can really make a difference in people's lives and people always point to like oh I had this experience or what about when this crime happens or this police officer was very kind to me and I guess the point we're making is like that isn't the that isn't the point we're making like we're not talking about individuals we're talking about systems with anything we ever talk about we, we very rarely just criticize a person for their actions we try and understand why those why those people exist in the first place and your intentions are irrelevant and to an extent your actions are irrelevant when you are part of a wider system do you find it easier to write songs when you're kind of writing against something in that way when you have something you can kind of write toward and direct the song at yeah i don't think i've ever well i have but i very rarely just think I don't know, I rarely, rarely just get an idea that I want to sort of talk about and write a song about it. It's usually, well, it's always in opposition to something, but it's usually spurred on by something, like something I've seen or read or whatever it is. But I think I quite often, I try and mix it up a little bit. Um, and it's not always just slagging stuff off. And I quite often try and write from the perspective of the thing or the person that we're criticizing i think that comes back to the thing about giving it enough rope to hang itself um yeah we'll kind of write from the perspective of the, the thing that we are critiquing i think which maybe people don't always get and sort of misinterpret what we're saying but that's the risk you take i suppose yeah it's a difficult balance because you don't want to be so brash that people kind of there's no room for mystery but also you don't want to be completely misinterpreted is that where, do the verses sometimes then almost form the part of the song where it could be a little bit more open to interpretation? And when you have that chorus and that line that you're kind of repeating, is that where it's maybe a little bit more simple? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably fair. Probably fair. Although, yeah, but I mean, I, I try not to get too hung up on, I don't know, people's interpretation or what it's going to... Because, you know, I, I think if I feel like I've made my point, then... You know, it's, it's no use in kind of fretting over, like, will people understand this? Because the people that are hearing the song, are, there's going to be some people that have a complete grounding in the stuff that you're talking about. There's some people that might have a passing interest. There's some people that won't have a clue with the issues you're talking about and they just like the tune. So you can't expect people to 
all the people to understand everything you're saying. But I don't know. I guess the best you can hope for is that it's a sort of in. It's a it's a way into to, to stuff because I think it's pretty clear that we're saying something. So even if you don't know what we're saying, you might you might want to find out more about what that is. I don't know. Maybe that's expecting a lot. I mean, we often joke about how like Les's lyrics would be just like some sort of mantra or repeated few words, and you know we'd like people to kind of sing along to it and. Maybe, maybe people will be like singing along to it and have absolutely no idea what the song's about. But maybe six months later, they, they think about it or like they read an interview of us, which they wouldn't have read if they hadn't just come to a gig and like had a dance. Yeah, I think it's a good way of kind of smuggling, smuggling ideas in in a way which like maybe someone wouldn't like to be sort of beaten over the head with it. But if you can sort of like get it in by osmosis over time yeah it's quite it's quite insidious what we're doing really <laughs> i was gonna say it comes back to what we were saying about nuance it's allowing it to work on multiple levels it can function as a track that's going to make people dance but it can also function as something that maybe a little bit after listening to it, it's going to hit you in a different way yeah and i should say you know again like i said before anyone listening to this who hasn't heard our music before we probably don't sound like much of a fun band but i think we are and bobby can talk more on this but the way the music is written and I think the way the music sounds, it's not asking. And to be honest, not even the lyrics, none of our songs are asking for you to do any sort of intellectual heavy lifting. And I think there's something in there to enjoy on a purely musical level. And a lot of the times there's something you could have a little dance about to as well. I mean, Bobby's more involved in the songwriting in that sense, but yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely always skeptical when I, I like see a band or a musician that presents that, their musical project as being basically a political project first and foremost and you do just think like if that's the only reason why anyone should listen to your music is that you're making like some sort of worthy point then like i don't know there are probably better forms in which you could do that if if all you want to do is like struggle against something or critique something like i don't know get involved in some sort of activism like write an essay the music can be more than one thing at once and like for for us writing the music it's definitely not like uh at the front of our minds like what what can, can we like give les a bass here to to shout about the police like eki homo and i guitarist yeah it's completely it's completely at the back of our minds like what the song's going to be about les doesn't add the lyrics until often like a lot of the song is written and so i think yeah it's it definitely works on more than one level and it's not not like we purely want to be a political band. Like that's in there, but it's it's one of several things that's going on. I think, yeah, like the there's a band from the eighties, uh, yeah, eighties, I think, called the Free Johns, and they were kind of known for their left wing politics. And I, f- I think they got asked in an interview, or they were described in an interview as a socialist band, and they said, "We're not a socialist band; we're three socialists in a band." which I think is quite a good way of looking at it. And I think it, like the question I always ask myself, if I'm sort of, I don't know, if you, any sort of art form or media, it, asking why is it in that form? Like, for example, if you're analysing a film, I think a useful question to ask yourself sometimes is why is this a film? Does this need to be a film? I think you see it a lot in documentary, when it, a docu- like a sort of modern documentary, a lot of the time it's just a way to, get a narrative it's point a to point b story narrative and there's nothing sort of formally interesting about it as a piece of filmmaking so i think you can ask yourself does this need to be a song and if not 
if it could if it would work just as well as written words, then I think you're you're going wrong somewhere. And I don't think I don't think you could say that about any any song we've we've ever put out. I think they all exist as songs and as pieces of music and they wouldn't work without being that. It's it's ultimately it's a bit of a cop out as well if you just hold up like the themes or the ideas in in the piece of music as being where it's its value comes from. Because if if those ideas are like correct or righteous or interesting or whatever it is, it's almost like people can't criticize the music because you're saying that that's not what this is about. And you, you see it a lot in like in, in visual art and like a lot of contemporary art, a lot of the discourse around it completely avoids discussing the artwork and it all just like talks about the kind of political connotations of this art, which are like often completely fabricated and like treat it treat this artwork as being a critique of something which no one would ever know it was if there hadn't been like an essay written about it to accompany it and yeah i think i think with like music it's very easy to to end up thinking what you're doing is is like really good and interesting because you know like your kind of intentions are coming from a really good place and that you have something really important to say but you know, the music that you're making might be like completely tedious. Why do why do we have a tendency to do that? Do you think to kind of overanalyze it and try and impart our own meaning upon it in that way that's maybe slightly inaccurate? Yeah, some, sometimes it's it's the easier thing to do. I don't know. I think I think there's also an element of like creating a kind of a discourse around something and creating creating something to say about things, which maybe there's not always a huge amount to say about obviously tangential but in the case of like contemporary art sometimes like there's a lot of art which is really like paper thin in terms of like the objects themselves the kind of processes that have gone into them and that applies to music too and it's it's kind of easier to talk about ideas that might be tangentially related to them than it is to to really talk about like why someone's made this and and what function this this object or this like creative work actually has and in in the case of music i mean we're totally guilty of it we always when we're talking about the band amongst amongst ourselves or to other people it's easy to just kind of talk about the the themes which are in the songs or like what this song is about and think that that's kind of that's the most important thing but i guess often that that's you know what's that quote like um about dancing about architecture you know that quote which is like um talking about music is like dancing to architecture like i think often with music maybe we're not kind of willing to we don't don't know how to just like express the fact that we just like it for what it is and we need to give it some like extra purpose attach some other meaning to it to to convince ourselves why why it's worthwhile and like why we really like it and why yeah, why it's something that we kind of dedicate a lot of our time to. Yeah, you can kind of almost, not consciously maybe, but the suggestion if you as a group talk incessantly about the point you're trying to make and the themes in your songs, you're, the, the suggestion there is that you kind of go over this stuff and you really nail it down as a as a group, which just is not true. And I'm not sure any any band is like that. Like, our re- recording sessions or rehearsal um, rehearsals—they're not like Politburo meetings, you know. 
we get together and we make music and we play the things that we like and the things we enjoy. We don't sit around talking about, I mean, we talk, we talk about our politics and the stuff we are interested in and things that are important to us, but we do that outside of the band as much as we do it within the band. When we're writing music, we don't, it's just not really a conversation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I feel like the emphasis, it's kind of, if any band that wants to be seen or describes themselves as political, you are opening yourself up to that level of analysis, I guess, but it's not all there is. We were talking about like the kind of the construction of the music a little bit earlier on as well. And you kind of touched upon that improvisation does play quite a heavy role within it. When does the conscious thought kind of enter it? Are you improvising and kind of coming up with things and then you start to structure it consciously afterwards? Or where does the kind of where are the lines kind of there between improvisation and, and conscious assembling of it? The, the way we write our music is really mixed, actually. And obviously, during the past year, we've barely been in the practice room. So we've been doing a lot more of just kind of writing things individually and then sending them to each other and kind of like t- talking about it probably more than we would do normally. Because, yeah, typically we just get in the practice room and it maybe doesn't always sound like it but a lot of our music is basically like comes from jamming i guess you can see that in some of the tracks like competition which are very repetitive or got a track called loud wars which again it's just like very repetitive repetitive lyrics repetitive bass and drums and it's it's been really interesting this past year to be forced to work in a different way and it's really i think it's made us because we're trying to write an album at the moment and some of the tracks on the album uh, are older tracks and were written in that, in that kind of improvised way. But now we're really talking about things a lot more. We're talking about kind of genres. We're talking about time signatures, things which really just happened unconsciously when we're in a practice room. And it's, I mean, it's tricky for us. Our, our guitarist, Eki Homo, is, is like the musician of the group who who really like knows what they're doing and can talk about things in terms of music, musical theory. Whereas I don't think the rest of us are able to do that or, or particularly would want to. So I think I've personally found like this year writing music at home pushed me more than just being in a practice room and just making noise and just having other people there to kind of fill it out. Like when you're at home and you're writing something, you really have to, you know, I'm, I'm sort of looking up time signatures i'm looking up like rhythms and particular genres i'm thinking about like how i can make my instrument sound and probably doing a lot more creative work than i would do normally and i don't know if the results are always better particularly if you're not someone who is very sort of music theory minded it's probably better to just make music collaboratively without thinking about it and most of my favorite bands are bands where their process of making music is not like one person writes something and then everyone else comes and like fits their music around it my favorite band is is can who we were talking about briefly earlier and their whole approach was like just like four musicians and on their own what they're doing each of them individually is doing would be like completely boring but then as a collective they've become like way more than the sum of their parts so when you're in isolation and you're trying to write music on your own and you you have a preference for making music in that more collaborative way it is quite challenging i think it means our album will probably be quite a mixed bag partly because we've we've intentionally tried to cover a lot of genres and styles but partly because 
the way in which the music is written has has varied a lot. With what you've been doing the last year, what you were saying, the way you've kind of been writing more in isolation and working on your individual parts, have you noticed that change the momentum of the music? Because that repetition that you get from when you're in the room together is kind of what gives it its pace, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I've, I've noticed that, I mean, if I write something at home, I've just sort of, I normally write about 50 seconds worth of music and then I send it to the band and say like, what do you think about this? And it probably means the music that we're writing in this, in this process is probably maybe going to be a bit more cluttered, a bit, there's going to be more going on. And yeah, I think, I think it will change the pace of the music. I mean, we're, we're hoping we'll be able to play together soon. And I'm sure all the ideas which we've had this year are going to evolve quite a lot once we all start playing together. But when, when we're playing in a room together, the, the pace at which things happen is kind of very, very slow. We'll play, you know, our longest track competition, which is probably like 10 minutes or so when we play it live. I think when we started writing that, it probably went on for about 40 minutes. And we're just kind of very slowly like doing the same thing over and over again, making like a very small change. If that change is good, then you kind of iterate it and do it again. And it definitely leads to a very different style of music. Yeah, it's really, it's not very technical really when you're in the room because you're saying like when does the conscious kind of construction come in? And some with some of the stuff it doesn't really factor in until we sort of say, you know, we've been playing the, the thing long enough, going round and round and round. And then we say, look, we're we're kind of there, but when is this going to end? Um, how many times is it? Are we going to do that? When do we stop doing that? And some, that, I mean, that's not always the case. Some of them they are sort of really put together. But I think a lot of our favourite songs, a lot of the ones that we have endured the most, are the ones that didn't really have that much construction involved. And the construction element was just about tidying things up and deciding when to stop playing, basically. Do when you're developing them in that setting and you're you know continuously jamming, do the songs tend to get more simple or more complex as you're working through them? I think we we often have to force ourselves to make things more complex. Sometimes we really overthink it, and we've written something which is quite good, and we feel like oh there needs to be like a some sort of mid eight, or there should be some sort of coda tacked onto it. But probably our, our songs which people enjoy the most, Competition on New Factory or MRU, there's not a huge amount of variation in them. They're, they're, they basically have two parts, either a verse or a chorus or just like a, a single part and then a breakdown. Yeah, it's, it's easy to over, overthink it and feel like you need to make it more complex than it, than it actually should be. We do. I think we have a tendency of throwing the baby out of the bathwater a little bit sometimes when we consciously try and write something or, or construct something more. Because we've had times where we've written a song or a part that we've all really liked, and we've just sort of said, "Well, we can't, we can't just do that either because it's too similar to something we've done before, or we need like we can't just have all these songs with the same sort of structure that isn't." So we've sort of added parts and added parts, take parts away. And we've ended up with something quite different that we've not been happy with and it's just gone. Like we've just got rid of it. Whereas the idea, the core, like the idea that started it, we all really liked, but we've kind of killed it by overthinking it basically. I guess as well, does the music take on the role of, if you're kind of, you know, laboring over the lyrics and refining them till they're quite carefully constructed, is the music almost counteracting that a lot of the time? 
and kind of providing something a little bit more raw when the lyrics are more, you know, consciously worked? Yeah, I think they they help pair it back a lot. There is a lot of times the song is essentially, the music is essentially written. Like, say say it's a song with just like a verse and a chorus. Those two parts are essentially done as they will be. What we don't know is what will go where, how long the song is going to be. So the guys will just play verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus over and literally loop it for quite a long time. Mixing it up a bit, like changing the lengths of each part, but playing the same parts and just looping it. And for the first few times, I'll just sort of listen, going over it in my head, taking words out here or phrases out there. So the the finished, the lyrics as they are in the finished song are almost the rhythm of the lyrics and the sort of phrasing and the amount of words even is like very, very much dictated by the music. Is How long will it take you to slip into patterns when you are writing? It really varies. There are a couple of our songs which were basically like fully formed within about five minutes. There's um, one of the tracks we recorded recently, it's a track called Harmony, which has got three parts. We'd recorded two parts for it. And I think we said, oh, we should like tack something on the end. Let's tack on like a kind of fast one minute long punk song. Joe, our drummer, just clicked in. And basically, like, we just started improvising. And what we played in that first, like, one minute is the finished song. And other times, you can really labor over something and, like, maybe start with an idea which seems like it's got a lot of potential or, or feels, like, quite good. And then the more time you spend on it, the more you realize that you just, you're completely incapable of developing it any further. The harmony thing's, the harmony thing's funny. Like, that song should see the light of day at some point this year either as part of an album or a single, but because we like, we really like it. But yeah, we sort of decided, I think we do sometimes decide to like set ourselves a bit of a challenge. And we decided we wanted to write a song that had three sections, none of which had anything to do with each other. And one would follow the other. And once one was over, you'd sort of never repeat it. And yeah, we had these two sections. And yeah, Joe Dangerous, our drummer, but essentially as a joke was like, because we were sort of discussing it and what we wanted it to be like. And he basically as a joke when I'll just click in and let's just play it and clicked in and we literally played it exactly as it appears on the record. <laughs> it was a weird, weird moment, but it kind of summed up. We do have this level of kind of, we're all in tune broadly, I think, um, on some level at least. So yeah, some of the stuff is kind of, it just sort of appears fully formed weirdly. Does the creative energy that that spawns bleed into the rest of the day when you're in working in the studio? Does that kind of carry into the rest of the music? It, de- it definitely makes it feel like what you're doing is worthwhile. And I think if you're, if you're someone like me, for example, who's not musically knowledgeable or talented, everything I do is basically by trial and error. Um, when you're kind of in the practice room and you try lots of things and you have a practice session where you, you spend like three hours in there and you don't come out with anything good, it can be really, really depressing and really just makes you like question if you have like any talent or any ideas at all. And then when you have those occasions where there've been a couple of other songs we've written almost exactly the same way where we just like clicked in and what we, what we came up with that first time is basically the finished song. And when you do something like that, it gives you so much. Yeah. It gives you a lot of enthusiasm, a lot more self-belief, even if it's just like purely good luck, you know, like, 
I don't even know what I'm doing with my fingers on the fretboard sometimes. It's, I mean, the trouble with that is it's a bit of a double-edged sword because uh, it means that we end up trying to sort of quantify whether a practice was successful or not. I think we can be quite hard on ourselves sometimes. If we come away from practice and being like, well, we, there's a bit of a feeling of disappointment, like, well, we didn't write any songs. And it's like, well, I think, you know, doing a practice without writing a new song is fine. <laughs> it's quite common, you know. Um, but the fact that we can do that sometimes means yeah sometimes we expect it to just drop out of the sky sometimes but it doesn't always happen what was the last idea you had that excited you <laughs> well for in terms of the band there was we were getting really quite excited about the stuff we, we were writing for the album in the summer when we were able to rehearse again um we were writing some stuff that we were getting really excited about um that when we weren't able to re rehearse anymore. We sort of forgot about, because like we say, all of what we do is so based on being in the room together. So we kind of left it and forgot about it. But in the last few weeks, we've all sort of got together and said, look, we need to carry on working on this, even if we're not meeting up. So we've had a meeting and we've sort of shared, Eki Homo um, records all of our practices, everything we play in practice. So we've got everything that we were writing or did write. And listening to them again in the last couple of weeks, I think has kind of reignited our excitement about the stuff that we're writing because I think we all think it's has the potential to be sort of some of the best stuff we've we've written I think within the past year or so we've had the realization as well that our music doesn't have to be really limited and that maybe, maybe this is because when we started out we weren't particularly confident in our in our songwriting ability and we also had the idea that we were going to be like a straight punk band but I think in the past year there have been things we've started doing almost as a joke in a sound check before a gig. We started playing like a jungle track and then we realized that it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily have to be a joke. Like we can make it sound like Italian I'm too. And a lot of the ideas that have gone into what we've written for the album so far are probably things which a couple of years ago would have just been a complete joke to us. Like we've got a track which is inspired by Mambo. We've got, sort of like Mexican ranchera style song. Well, the baseline came from at least. And and things which do not at all sound like Italian 90, but I think we've kind of cottoned on to the fact that like, oh, that's completely in our hands whether or not it sounds like Italian 90. And you don't just have to be like, you know, ACDC, like churning out like exactly the same song for 40 years. Like it's it's totally possible if you if you're like clever about things and if you if you have like one part of the music which is always the same, like Les's vocals, for example, are always going to make whatever we do sound like Italian 90. And I think realizing that has made, made us feel a lot more open-minded about songwriting. I feel like the, is that a realization that can only arrive once you've been doing it for a while and you kind of understand what it is that makes the band the band? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean... I think it's interesting. It's sort of, I mean, it's probably a wider point, but I think it's interesting the way that the way that bands kind of develop now, um, as opposed to maybe 40, 50 years ago, where you know you would new bands would spring up and do a few gigs, and if they were shown a bit of promise, or even if they were just part of a scene that was becoming trendy, then they would be signed. And being signed back then meant you're on the label now and you're going to be given the money to go and record an album. So there's a lot of bands who within five years of forming had made four albums 
And their first album is essentially their live set list. Their second album is kind of more of the same. The third album they start exploring and the fourth album, it really develops. And by four albums in, they're a completely different band and their influences have changed, the way they write songs have changed. But now it's like, for a lot of bands anyway, the what you have to do before you even get the chance to make an album is go through that early stage, gigging, um, gigging a lot, touring, um, getting new influences, changing the way you write. All of that happens before you make your first album. Um, and even when you get on a label, you're not really on the label in the sense that, you know, you're getting your, your recording funded and stuff. So I do think it's interesting that if we... So the album we're making now and the songs that we're writing now, if it was 40, 50 years ago, it would probably be the kind of point where we started to broaden our horizons as we were recorded our fourth album, if that makes sense. So it's interesting. Like the idea of a first album being a snapshot of what a band is about, it's not really the case anymore. Certainly not for us because what we're about has has really changed um, since we started. Um, so yeah, our first album is going to be a result of a huge amount of development. I and think. Yeah, I would also say that I think nowadays a lot of music scenes are not really limited to a particular genre and that obviously comes from the kind of collapse of genres or the kind of melting of the boundaries between them that's happened over the past 20 or 30 years, whether that's like because of the internet or just like postmodernism, whatever it is. And I think maybe there's not really so much of a compulsion to just keep doing the same thing. Because even if you get, as a, as a band or an artist, you get tagged as being part of a particular scene, like people often say we're part of like a, a South London scene based around Brixton Windmill. But then like all of the bands that are within that scene, there's not really a huge amount in common amongst them. Whereas maybe like 15, 20 years ago, more than that, if you were part of a scene, it was very much like, everyone in that scene made the same music and so and music aged very quickly and even as recently as like the late noughties there's all this like indie music which just even by like 2012 sounded like horrifically dated and you could kind of almost like place exactly which london postcode it had come from but i think now because that's maybe not how the music industry works so much and it's not really the mindset people have about making music I think people don't feel like, oh, we need to, we need to keep doing the same thing because that's what's popular or that's like that's what people know us for. And I think having the realization that like if you do something quite different, people are still going to be interested in it, and you're not just going to like drop out of a scene or drop off everyone's radar. I think that means you probably end up being more adventurous writing music than you would have been otherwise. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.